0: A strong cardiopulmonary team is a critical piece of any hospital, including rural. From emergent to inpatient to outpatient care, they are part of it all. So, how do rural hospitals build that team and support its success long-term?
1: With passionate professionals, investment in their goals, and the right clinical manager.
0: I'm Rachel Lott.
1: And I'm JJ Hodshire.
0: And this is Rural Health Rising.
1: Welcome to episode 112 of Rural Health Rising. I'm J.J. Hotshire, president and chief executive officer of Hillsdale Hospital.
0: And I'm Rachel Lott, chief communications officer.
1: Rachel, I'm excited. Our guest today is someone who has a lifetime career in cardiopulmonary uh, and really right here at the local community hospital level and serving her rural community for which she has Mm -hmm. been an integral part of uh, her entire life. So I'm excited today.
0: That's right. She has a lifetime career and I think we should be also giving her like a lifetime achievement award uh, because we are talking with someone who, like you said, has spent much of her career serving our community and our hospital.
1: Our guest today is Valerie Boyd, cardiopulmonary and sleep lab manager right here at Hillsdale Hospital. Welcome for your first time on Rural Health Rising. Welcome, Val.
0: Thank you for inviting me. I appreciate it.
1: Absolutely.
0: To start, Val, tell us a little bit about yourself, your background, and your work at Hillsdale Hospital.
2: Well, I actually hired in at Hillsdale Hospital way back in 1975. Um, There was a position open for an on-the-job training uh, position in the respiratory department, and I thought, hmm, curious about that. So I applied, got the job, found out in the three years that I worked here during that time that this is something I was passionate about. Mm-hmm. I left Hillsdale Hospital for three years, became credentialed, stopped back in to return a book to the director at that time. And he said, hey, I have an assistant <laughs> director position. Would, are you interested? And I've wow. been here for wow. the, the next 40 years or history. Wow. wow. Isn't that awesome? <laughs> wow. So, Wrong yeah, career. respiratory is something I felt very passionate about and uh, been very blessed, really. I have mm-hmm.
0: like God led me down this path.
2: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
0: Do you remember in those first three years when you developed that passion? What it was about respiratory that really stuck with you?
2: Making a difference in patients' lives, really feeling the um, the impact of that. You mm-hmm. know, making it helping patients be able to breathe easier,
0: um, educate them about their disease process. Um, yeah, very gratifying. Mm-hmm. And I imagine with respiratory, you see a lot of that in real time. Yes, yes, we do.
1: But your involvement was not just respiratory and cardiopulmonary. You actually uh, took on the challenge of putting together a robust sleep lab program. Um, And so that's also in your background. Spent a lot of time working with our pulmonologist uh, Mm -hmm. because they do have oversight of that. And I mean, you've been everywhere uh, when it comes to these two services. And Val, during your tenure here, uh, did you have any other outreach and any other programs that you were involved with?
2: Um, as far as clinical programs, yeah, yeah. Um, really cardiopulmonary covers a lot of different areas. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, we also had the Breathers Club at one point. We That ran for several years right. prior to COVID, right. um, and that was a community support group uh, that I coordinated. and. Uh, We had different speakers every month educating community about the respiratory therapy, diseases, COPD, and Mm -hmm. treatment for those things. So
1: So passionate about education. You're passionate about giving care to our community. Uh, And I think you're just passionate in general. I think that uh, (laughs) really that expression is uh, who you are and how you live your life. And let's talk a little bit about that. And, you know, we always start with a why. And this is on every episode that we do. And we ask the question— Why? Um, And so we've established who you are. We've established your background, the many years of service that you have here. uh, But we want to get to know you a little bit better, and our audience wants to get to know you just a little bit better as it pertains to the why. So, what motivates you? What gets you up out of bed in the morning to do the things that you do each and every day? In other words, what is your why?
2: I think the opportunity to make a difference, whether that difference is in the lives of patients or My staff or the organization, it's uh, like I said, it's very gratifying to feel like you have made a difference in the lives of people. Absolutely. So I believe that's my why.
1: Yeah. Mm -hmm.
0: Let's get a good kind of overview of what all the cardiopulmonary team does in a hospital because Mm -hmm. it is a lot more than what people think. And even those of us who work in healthcare but don't work in cardiopulmonary, it's easy to kind of lose sight of how involved cardiopulmonary is in so many of our other programs that we couldn't have X if we didn't have cardiopulmonary. We couldn't have Y if we didn't have cardiopulmonary. So can you give us that kind of overview? Your team is just involved in so many different aspects of providing care.
2: You're right. We are. Um, All of our team are respiratory therapists. So we're involved in the basic respiratory duties, such as, you know, responsible for all the oxygen therapy in the hospital, uh, providing breathing treatments to patients, um, taking care of ventilators, which patients on ventilators, which is life support, mm-hmm. BiPAP equipment, that type of thing. But we're also responsible for um, doing performing EKGs. We have a very active diagnostic lab uh, where we do stress tests and pulmonary function testing. Mm-hmm. We also have a cardiac and pulmonary rehabilitation uh, program that is very, very active. Um And in addition to all of that, our team responds to all of the rapid responses called Mm -hmm. within the hospital and the Code Blues. So respiratory are very, they're an integral part of the critical care patient experience in our hospital. Mm -hmm. Um, And our staff are relied heavily upon to, you know,
0: Provide their expertise and, and yeah. help during those situations. Right, right. Yeah. You really can't have a hospital without a cardi- cardiopulmonary team. Yeah. Agreed. <laughs> Val, has, has
1: the credentialing changed at all in the last four decades? You know, I mean, um, I've heard stories about it was pretty rigorous uh, at one time. I'm assuming it's still rigorous to go through the program. Yes. For someone listening today who may not know what are the credentials behind cardiopulmonary that one needs, you have different levels, Right. Can you explain a little bit about that just to educate our listeners?
2: Well, and it has changed over the last four decades. As I mentioned, I had hired in here as an on-the-job trainee. We don't even hire people without training, prior prior training. So, Val,
1: just so I understand, four decades ago, you did not have the degree at that time? Correct. You were just on the job?
2: Yes, really. Forty six years ago. Forty six. So years you're ago.
1: like, I'm interested, and they're just going to take me under their wing.
2: There was one credentialed person in the department, hmm. and that wow. was the director. That was is it. that right? Yes. And
1: everybody else was OJT.
2: Yes. Wow. But Incredible. there are only a few people. So anyway, we've grown our department. Sure, sure, So we are now fully credentialed. And the state of Michigan did change requirements. So respiratory mm-hmm. therapists now have to be licensed by the state of Michigan. Yeah. Um, so yes, the, the requirements have changed. Yeah. So there's a two-year program. Um, Jackson College is the nearest one to us, uh, offers a respiratory program. Once someone completes that program, then they set for their national boards and become a registered respiratory therapist. Right. And that's what most of our staff are right now is our RTs.
1: Right. And, you know, when we talk about a little bit of the work that you do, um, and we're going to talk about how it's impacted in RULE, but, I mean, you're really, your department is responsible for being everywhere. You have to be in the emergency department. Uh, Mm -hmm. You're called down to obstetrics. You're called upstairs to CCU, critical care. Um, where do you find the most of your work is, is being done, or is it just equally everywhere?
2: Um, I would say probably critical care, the, the critical care unit and emergency department. Yeah.
1: You're As, called there the most. Yes. Yeah.
2: Yes. In addition to all of our outpatient stuff that we do. Yeah. but. Those are the areas we're most active in. But, I mean, we also you know, serve roles over in the, the skilled nursing facility. Yeah. And mm-hmm. um, as you mentioned, the nursery, if there's a baby born prematurely right. or with um, some respiratory issues, the therapist is called over there to assist right. with that. Right.
1: Okay. So what's your involvement in vent management? So a patient is put on the ventilator. What is your involvement as cardiopulmonary as it relates to that?
2: Well, the respiratory therapist would actually set that patient up on the ventilator, right. determine the settings to be used okay. based on protocol that we have in place, and then we monitor that patient. Um, every three to four hours, we're up seeing that patient, checking mm-hmm. on them, making sure everything is going well with their with their care. Yeah. And then we would also be involved in weaning that patient off the ventilator when it was appropriate mm-hmm. and, you know, extubating them, pulling the endotracheal tube. And yeah. Uh, if they're breathing breathing spontaneously.
1: Right. So let's talk a little bit about some of the challenges because this is called rural health rising. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so let's talk a little bit about uh, some of the challenges working in rural health care. Uh, you know, and and I guess you and I know that we've had numerous conversations uh, regarding situations in which employees who work for you uh, have said, we're done. We are going to a bigger hospital where they have more teams and they have, you know, additional support that we can, you know, garner, et cetera, et cetera. And so we know, you know, having lived this for decades, that it's not easy working in a rural environment. And oftentimes we're out recruited uh, because, Mm -hmm. you know, there's better staffing ratios and there's, you know, those types of things that exist. But, you know, what are some of the challenges, you know, or unique elements that you and your team manage here that may be less prevalent in urban or suburban communities. You know, we do have uh, an elderly population. Uh, we do have a lot of individuals who are smokers. Um, so maybe you could talk just a little bit about the type of patient in rural that you that you experience and then some of the challenges that you face with a limited team.
2: I think our biggest challenge as far as um, staffing goes would be recruiting yeah. Therapists to a small rural community, unless they're from this area. Yeah. So right. I was very grateful several years ago when Jackson College, which is close to our community, right. um, agreed to start a respiratory program. As a result, most of our staff are graduates of Jackson College. So, oh, that, wow. Yeah, that helped tremendously. As far as our patient population, I mean, I think the patients that we see are not un unlike those you would see in other facilities, yeah. larger facilities. I think the difference is we develop relationships with those patients mm-hmm. um, because we see them um, frequently. I mean, a lot of them come in quite often for either mm-hmm. outpatient testing or, unfortunately, maybe admitted several different mm-hmm. times. So we develop relationships with those people. And I think in a large facility, you're, you may be lacking that. That personal relationship with your patients.
1: Yeah. And so, you know, the patients, let's talk a little bit about the type of patient, though, that you're witnessing here. I mean, you've got patients who are um, repeat, you know, users, I guess we should say, consumers of healthcare, right? Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, that's, I'm sure, a little frustrating when individuals come back in presenting for some of the same uh, types. Of uh, diagnosis, and maybe they refuse to quit smoking or those type of things. Talk to us a little bit about, you know, when, we, when we're in a rural setting like this, you know, you do see higher incidence of those types of patients. Can you talk a little bit about that?
2: Sure. I think, um, I, I really think you're going to see those types of patients wherever you go. They're, I think it's it's not just okay. a, a rural setting that you're going to see those patients in. But again, the relationship can make a difference because we see those patients frequently, and we can talk to them, provide education to them, mm-hmm. um, and try to persuade them, Yeah, uh, be here as a resource for them if they choose to. And you're, what you mentioned was stopping smoking. Right. Um, and it, those are a little frustrating when— we give people the resources yeah. they and tools that they need to help themselves, and they choose not to, to not to take do those, it right. Mm-hmm. but we can't control that, yeah.
1: so what type of education exists, though? I mean, you're not just rendering services, but your team is also educating. The patients.
0: Yes, right. Because you're not just telling someone to go go, do go quit X, y, smoking and yeah. in a vacuum, they're supposed to figure it out, right? right?
2: No, no. We provide. We have those resources available, so we we help teach patients about their disease process. Because if you have, I'm, I'm going to use COPD because that's the most commonly um, thought of disease process when you think of respiratory therapy. Mm-hmm. Um, People who have COPD oftentimes are not educated about their disease process. They don't know what to Mm. expect. They don't know why they're having these symptoms or Mm -hmm. what's causing these symptoms. So we do a lot of education with that. Um, We also teach them about the medications they're using, why it's important to use it, how to use them properly and at at the correct frequency. Mm -hmm. Um, And we do provide resources on stopping smoking. Yeah, Um,
1: which is critical, obviously. You know, I want to talk about something, if I could, that's probably not going to be popular uh, for some of our listeners because we all know someone that does it. But this this new fad, and I guess I, sh- I shouldn't say it's new, but vaping, mm-hmm. you know, and um, it's becoming more and more prevalent as you see uh, smoking. Uh, you know, maybe dissipate just a little bit. You're hearing that the individuals are now saying, "Oh, well, I vape; it's much safer." And Val, I, I want to push back against that notion that, oh, yeah. that vaping is, uh, you know, something that's a little more uh, positive than smoking. Because uh, right now, if you were to drive, at least in our communities, Rachel, I don't know what you face in Indiana, but there are a tremendous amount of these smoking shops now.
0: Oh, yeah, that are you see them in strip malls and stuff yeah. like that. The, the vape shops. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
1: So Val, talk to us a little bit about what this does to an individual.
2: Anything that you're breathing into your lungs is potentially harmful. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And the last I knew, the the vaping devices were not regulated by the FDA. Exactly. So you don't know how much nicotine yeah. you're getting in yeah. that. Mm-hmm. Anything you breathe into your lungs, though, is potentially dangerous to your right. lungs. Yeah.
0: Well, yes. and anybody can sell them. So especially when they first got popular, you know, there was a lot more, I think there was more hesitation around them initially because it was like anybody – you you could make vape juice in your garage mm-hmm. and start selling it. And it could have antifreeze in it for all we know, yeah. right? So, I, you know, you hear more about that. But I do feel like the – it seems like this is almost supplanted cigarette smoking in a younger generation that's seeing it as an alternative to mm-hmm. cigarette smoking when really it's not any better or safer for you in the long run. And you'd never hear stories about people – dying because they were smoking a cigarette unless they fell asleep with it in the bed. But you do hear stories about people dying from a vape that explodes in their hand or their yeah. mouth and stuff like that that's really scary. So it may not be, you know, we have decades and decades of research showing the link to lung cancer, mm-hmm. but it's still a huge risk. And I'm sure it, it we'll will have data at some point that shows you know, a connection yeah. to those diseases. Yeah.
2: Absolutely. And our professional organization, the American Association for Respiratory Care, mm-hmm. came out with an article a few years ago against vaping, that it mm-hmm. is not a safe alternative
0: yeah. to smoking.
1: Yeah. I've watched some of the videos where, you know, they show the crystallization in your lungs from this. And Ooh. it's just, it's...
0: I don't even know what that is, but it sounds horrible. Oh, yeah. Well, let's <laughs> talk... you want to take a deep breath.
1: Yeah. Well, let's talk about other... Uh, you know, uh, when we think about the crystal crystallized lungs and things that you hear about, we heard we heard about that the first introduction to me was during COVID nineteen,
0: mm-hmm. and
1: Doctor Shuker here actually explained what was happening to one of my loved ones, um, what what COVID was doing. So, you know, Val, let's talk a little bit. You know, and I know that we've talked COVID nineteen to death, uh, you know, uh, on every subject matter from the ER, you name it, but we've not discussed it in relationship to you know, cardiopulmonary, Mm -hmm. and I'd like to do that because you played a critical, vital role during COVID-19, your department, and across the country, departments like yours, who were, you were the gatekeepers for us, if you think about it, Uh, and you were the experts. I mean, that's who they turned to when the patient had COVID-19 because quickly these individuals were being placed on vents, uh, very quickly, and we did not know at the time, you know, what what COVID nineteen long term effects were going to be, and and for a certain amount of time, you know, we were scrambling to even question: Do we have enough vents? Remember those days? Yeah. Oh, I sure. Where did. we were trying to, you know, can we get two off of one, and how do we do that? Is it the safest thing? So, why don't you, uh, you know, as we as we trace back COVID nineteen and its impact on you, I I don't want to put words in your mouth, but I would submit to you that that was probably the most tense. Time in your career, mm, definitely uh, for the most challenging a and yes. you know, talk to us a little bit about the beginning of the pandemic. Uh, you know what we were seeing with those patients going on ventilation. Um, can you describe what that time was like for you and your department, and how did you get through it?
2: You know, during the first surge, we were we were trying to be prepared because we were hearing all of these nightmarish stories of how. Um, emergency departments were having to choose which patients would live and which ones would die because they didn't have enough ventilators mm-hmm. to support mm-hmm. all these patients. Mm-hmm. So we were scrambling, trying to make sure we rented enough ventilators. utilize. We, we learned how to utilize our BiPAP equipment to be used as ventilators from the manufacturer, oh, all wow. FDA-approved, of course. I remember
0: that. I remember but, you talking about that back then on, on Safety Huddle and stuff. Mm-hmm. Yes.
2: So we were geared up for it, and we were prepared. And thankfully— As you know, the first surge just bypassed us. Just bypassed us, us. Mm -hmm. it did. So by the time the second surge came around, the thinking had had differed a little bit. Now instead uh, of—initially they thought the first thing you had to do is intubate these patients, put them on a ventilator. Mm -hmm. Well, as time went on, they realized that is not the best thing to do. A ventilator ventilator should be a last resort rather than a first Mm -hmm. resort. Mm -hmm. So by the time we started getting the COVID-19s, it was— The thinking had changed a little bit. We had plenty of equipment for what needed to be done, a lot of high flow oxygen, Mm BiPAPs, and of course we had the ventilators, but those were last resort. So we didn't have a lot of patients on vents with COVID.
0: Did you have more than you typically would? Like, did you have a high, were you guys putting people on and taking people off of vents way more frequently than you ever had? Even though we didn't have the same level. Our volumes were high, definitely. Our volumes were much higher than they Mm -hmm. normally are. So we need a patient. Yeah. What was that experience like for your team? Because there's a really, I mean, it seems to me like putting someone on and taking someone off, whether, you know, regardless of the circumstance when you're taking them off, that it's not in. It's not the easiest part of a of a clinician's job because it is such a big deal for the families and for the patient to go onto a ventilator. What was that like for your team having to do that so frequently? It was really devastating um,
2: because we had so many patients that we saw who didn't survive. Yes. Mm-hmm. and of course, yes. as healthcare workers, yes. we like to help people get better and yeah. and you know see right. that as right. a success. And you yeah. see death, but not at this frequency. No. no. And to have that helpless feeling that there's nothing more that we can do for this person, it was it was really devastating for our staff. Um, It was a very stressful time. Yeah, the staff were concerned about the patients. I was concerned about my staff making sure they were safe and emotionally healthy. Um,
0: the bravest group of individuals I've ever worked with.
1: Yeah, absolutely.
0: As their manager, how did you um, work to support them in the midst of that? Mm Because I think that's one of the great lessons that people can learn from a manager like you, because uh, anyone who was at your retirement celebration last week knows how (laughs) beloved you are here at Hillsdale Hospital and that you are just the rock star of rock stars when it comes to being a great manager for your team. So I think that's something people listening can really learn from you. How did you handle that situation, knowing that you needed to make sure your staff were emotionally healthy?
2: Uh, just, I have an open door policy. They're always welcome to come in and talk to me. We often talked as a group. They, can, mm. they supported each other. I kept our our department refrigerator stocked with drinks and snacks. We mm. called it the COVID relief. Yeah, oh. <laughs> We had that. lots of food because right. oftentimes people wouldn't even have time to eat lunch. It was so right. busy. So grab a snack and a drink and, uh, you know, mm-hmm. pick up and keep going. Um, and I prayed a lot. Yeah, yeah. A, lot mm-hmm. of, a
1: lot of faith happening there, wasn't yeah. there? Yeah, and so we can, you know, I, I heard... Phrases like, we've had enough pizza, you know, and it it came down to staffing. And that becomes a challenge. I mean, when you don't have the staffing Mm -hmm. and it's very difficult to recruit to rural communities, um, that was a challenge. And so on behalf of Hillsdale Hospital, I want to thank you for what you led for us uh, through one of the most tumultuous times uh, in our history. And while we escaped the first round, we did not. The remaining. And even today, um, you are witnessing a few, sporadic at best, mm-hmm. but a few patients who still uh, are passing away from COVID 19. And um, so it's very, you know, it's, it's, while it's slowed down, it's still, you know, when you lose a patient, it's, it's tough.
2: It is. Yeah. It is. And we were losing, um, I mean, age didn't seem to be a factor in that. No. We lost mm-hmm. some young people, as you yeah. know, JJ, oh, yeah. as well as some older people. Yeah, mm-hmm.
1: um, And no matter their age, it's still hard, no matter absolutely. what their involvement, you right. know, for this just to spring up on them and uh, for that to happen. And at the time, you know, there was grave concerns because we had to lock the hospital down. Yeah. And so families only really up until the end, could see their loved ones because again we didn't know what we didn't know at the time Mm -hmm. and at Mm -hmm. at the end of the day we had to protect everyone including caregivers and uh, but but among those were the patient's family we didn't want them to contract covid and then as a result they would end up in the hospital so there's a lot of unknowns and uh, we tried to manage it to the degree that we could and
0: we've learned a lot Devastated, we have i think there's still a lot to learn i agree we've Mm -hmm. come a long way in last few years right i agree So to uh, put some proof in the pudding to the claim I just made about you being one of our best managers at Hillsdale (laughs) Hospital, um, you have some of the highest employee engagement (laughs) scores of any department in our hospital. Um, So with that, because we know you're a stellar manager, how do you do that? How have you built that kind of culture and team within your department? Um, And then also you led the culture committee for, I'm going to refer to it as the culture committee. It's had a couple different names over the years, but essentially it's the culture <laughs> committee for Hillsdale Hospital as well, because clearly you're so good at it with your department. Why not let values or talents with everybody, right? Yeah. Um, so tell us a little bit about how you do that and and what you have seen really be successful in building that type of really engaged employee culture.
2: Well, thank you, Rachel. But I have to say, I have a great team and they make me look good.
1: <laughs> well, you, you, well, you hired that
0: team, so there's something. <laughs> That's true. Yeah, I, I do credit them with that I always want to deflect she the is, compliment. She is. So humble. <laughs>
2: um, several years ago, we had a, an organiz- a student group came into the hospital mm-hmm. and introduced an initiative. Um, and one thing that really stuck with me is they talked about the importance of rounding with your employees. Mm-hmm. And I have, that's what I do. Every month I have some pointed questions I ask each one individually. They come in my office. We close the door one-on-one. I ask them questions. They answer and pour their hearts out sometimes. Mm -hmm. And um, as a result of that, we've made great changes in our department based on employee suggestions. Um, Mm. And they know that their voice is being heard. If someone brings me a concern. I follow up on it and I get right back with them as to what was either we could do it or we couldn't fix it mm-hmm. and the reason mm-hmm. why. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that really, I think that I have to credit that with uh,
0: the, as far as mm-hmm. the engagement piece. Yeah. Yeah. It sounds like it creates a lot of empowerment within your team and that people feel like they are involved in the whole process and not just there to fulfill the specific lined out job duties, but mm-hmm. that they can have mm-hmm. some real impact in their department, but also with their patients by having the opportunity to be fully engaged. Mm-hmm. I think that's really what, what that demonstrates with your rounding is that you give them the opportunity to be so engaged and then they're comfortable, to your point, doing it and being engaged in bringing things up mm-hmm. even when it's not necessarily in that rounding context. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. They I, I feel that really helps with the
2: engagement piece. Um, they know they have a voice, um, mm-hmm. and, and that's important to me. Mm-hmm.
0: And then they have a relationship with you, which I think is part of it, too. When you feel like your leader cares about your professional well-being and your personal well-being and knows you as a person and knows where you want to go with your career and things like that, mm-hmm. I think that makes a big difference. I I agree.
2: I agree. And I encourage everyone, go as far as you can go, I mean as far as your career goes. Yeah. Um, do whatever your heart desires. We've got three individuals right now who are enrolled in a, a review for adult critical care specialist course. Wow. They're gonna take board the national board for that exam. That's great. And become adult critical care specialists in our wow. hospital. Is, Is that, that and I'm so under the of umbrella them.
0: of cardiopulmonary too? Yes, it's, it's like an advanced an credential. credential. Wow, yes that's
2: awesome. for critical care. And I'm yeah. so proud of those people yeah. and I just encourage everyone to do as much as you can education-wise. Be the best you can be. Yeah. Mm
1: -hmm. So, I mean, obviously, you and I have spent a lot of time uh, when I was director of organizational development Mm -hmm. uh, and leadership forums and summits and made you do all kinds of crazy stuff out at Camp Machendo to build teams (laughs) up. Uh, But in each of those cases, I've selected you as a team leader, and I actually tapped you on your shoulder and said, I need you to lead uh, several other initiatives, and you've done that. Um, Val, if you could describe, you know, one of the challenges I think that we have going on right now across the country, whether it's healthcare or any work environment is engagement, you know, and it's hard, you know, even, you know, not only employee engagement, but also engagement, you know, for managers, you hear this word burnout, you hear work-life balance. You've been doing this for decades. And I guess, you know, my question is, um, You know, number one, how, what advice would you give to new leaders who are feeling overwhelmed with all the responsibilities that they have not to give up? And number two, um, you know, what kind of leader would you describe yourself as? You know, and there's all kinds of leaders, right? Um, I know what you are, but I'm gonna see if you can get it right. Um, but, <laughs> but I, I, I have an idea of what type of leader you are. And what I want to ask you first, though, is is the question of engagement. You know, how do we, how do we build up this next generation of leaders? How, if a, if a manager of any department was listening to this podcast today, um, you know, and you could give them advice from someone who's seasoned. Of nearly five decades, you know what would that look like? How how do they get engaged?
2: Oh, JJ, you've been a big inspiration to me. I remember when you used to send out the what did you in call perspectives? The, yes, in perspectives. <laughs> so every in, week. Yes Every, and I really yeah. <laughs> I was disappointed when that stopped yeah. but um you've really been an inspiration Not everybody to me.
1: liked those. <laughs> I understand but I did. <laughs> Absolutely. I did.
2: So I think if someone is feeling overwhelmed as a manager the best thing to do is reach out to a fellow manager develop a relationship yeah. and have yeah. someone as a resource to bounce your your thoughts yeah. off of because Absolutely. everybody goes through those difficult times when mm-hmm. they feel like they're in the pits mm-hmm. and it's hard to mm-hmm. pull yourself out yeah um, I've certainly been there myself right. um, it happens to everyone yeah um, I I beyond that I, I we've read some great books that yeah. you've Delegated any, any any particular, <laughs>
1: and I know I put you on the spot for a lot of this, but any particular book that really something that you used in in your Oh, you career? know what I
2: love. I love the No Complaining ah, Rule. That's right, you do.
1: That's a great book.
2: <laughs> it is, it is, and I very I applied that. It is very simple. Yeah. I applied that in my department. Yeah. The Energy Bus is another one. I, John Gordon's a very positive. He is a very positive uh, author, and yeah. yeah, I would highly recommend some of his books yeah. to new managers. And him,
1: we've had him actually on a WebEx before. Um, so he's actually available to teach and to uh, be a motivational speaker. But there are some great, there's some great, you know, how to one-on-one entry level management books.
2: Yes. Yeah, there are. Um, mm-hmm. Read many of them. Yes. Yeah.
1: And so leader, you know, what, what, what are the tenets of your leadership? What are the things, you know, really that you feel define you as a leader?
2: I think my... My, my passion, I'll use that word again, um, for my staff, for the patients that we care for, um, for our hospital. Mm-hmm. I love our hospital, love our community. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that is really the basis of what yeah. motivates me.
1: So I'm going to give you your leadership style, <laughs> all <laughs> <Okay>. right? <laughs> servant leader. A lot of books written about servant leadership. I've read and a few of them. I will tell you that if you were to, in my opinion, look up servant leader, you would see Val Boyd, because that's what you are. You serve and you serve your community, you serve your patients. The most important is I've watched you serve your employees and you're just a servant leader. And they follow you, if not even just out of curiosity, they follow you <laughs> because they know that you are a servant leader. You're a servant at heart. And your faith has been a huge role uh, in your life. And there's, there's, importance of that relationship, because many times the stress of this job can just eat us alive. Mm-hmm. And you have to have mental, physical, and spiritual uh, strengths and wellness. And if you are depleting any of those, uh, there's going to be an imbalance. and And that's where it leads to some pretty bad times as a manager but uh, you have balanced those so well and what's most remarkable is has been watching your your faith and that even in the hardest times uh, you have done very very well for this hospital and let's talk about some of those hard times um, you've survived floods here mm-hmm. fires mm-hmm. tornado did you survive the tornado Oh, you must have. You're here, but there was a <laughs> there was a tornado back in the uh, late '70s. I don't know if you were here or not at that time. Oh, or if you think.
0: were on your three year. If it was in that, yeah, was it, could it have 75 been. to 78, or I, was it, it was one of those. 79 to 81? Because yeah. that's when you would have been gone, right? I think there's a great
1: years. tornado of '78. They tell me the great one sleep. I
0: remember is the tornado of '60. Five or
1: okay. All right. Yeah. And then there was a <laughs> was great snowstorm that, you know, yes. kept everybody out of the hospital. But, uh, you know, obviously throughout your career, you've seen a lot, you've done a lot. But, you know, I, I, I want you to talk a little bit about the challenges of clinical side. So clinical part of side, the business side, your business acumen, you know, because it's changing. Healthcare oh, is yes so is. dynamic right now. And the cost of doing business is, Rachel, you know, oh, uh,
0: outrageous. less than we get
1: reimbursed for. Yeah, right, exactly. So to find, you know, a good balance, you have to have a good business leader. It's not just about being the clinical leader anymore, is it? You have to be no, the cheerleader for your department, the cheerleader for the patient, the clinician. But you also have to make sure that you're profitable or at least break even. And that mm-hmm. is something that's becoming increasingly important more and more difficult. So talk to us a little bit about, as you've watched that change over the last four decades, is it becoming the hardest part of your job?
2: Well, it's definitely a package. All the things that you mentioned is a responsibility for managers. It It is difficult. I remember back in the day when I started, we had DRGs or before DRGs, I'm sorry, we had people lined up in the in the hallway yeah, because did. insurances were just paying whatever we yeah. were charging. Yeah. And then DRGs came yeah. into into effect. Mm-hmm. That was a huge change. Oh, that was change. a huge disruptor. Yes, and now, we're, yeah, so now we're seeing more changes. Oh, well, we are. So I think it's just really important to stay on top of your budget, be realistic with the budget. I am always scouring my budget at the end of the month if I'm over by a couple of mm-hmm. dollars even. I'm looking to see why. Um you know, keep overtime sure do. down yeah. um, the best you can. And, you know, of yeah. course, staffing is a huge expense. Yeah. Right. Um, so we try not to have unnecessary overtime. Yeah. Um, but supplies, equipment, those are things that we have no control yeah. over.
1: So I'm going to yeah. ask you a load of question then. Do you think care is compromised uh, in the new world that we're operating in with insurance is denying uh, maybe rehab or denying certain things, and you're free to talk about it here. Uh, talk to us a little bit about maybe some of those things that you've experienced. Patients who need care.
2: Yeah. Um, we haven't, and as far as rehab goes, we haven't seen many rejections. Most of those are approved. If they have a certain Good. diagnosis, sure. then they're approved. Sure. Um, I think people are more reluctant to come to the hospital these days. So we've seen people who uh, put off coming to the hospital until they're like critically ill. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, that's a downside to it that for is. sure, um, and I think that has impacted patients' health.
1: Yeah. Well, you know, obviously the payers are the drivers right now, and yep. that's something that Rachel and I are continuously fighting. In fact, uh, we spend a lot of our time in advocacy and uh, you know sharing the stories that you give us of what happens on the front line. So uh, certainly the battlefield, uh, and mm-hmm, I, I think the the line has been drawn right. And uh, on one side, we know what stands, and on the other side, here we are trying to fight for rural health care. And so let's talk a little bit about that. Uh, you've had a long, very fruitful career, um, but you've had chances to leave little rural Hillsdale. Well, I have. Why'd you stay here? I mean, that throughout your entire career, uh, which could have been at a very metropolitan area or a teaching university hospital. Uh, what what kept you here?
2: Hillsdale is my community, and Hillsdale Hospital is my hospital. I've, I feel ownership to this hospital just mm-hmm. by being employed here and yeah. contributing to the hospital. Yeah. So I, I wouldn't be—I had opportunities, but— I wasn't interested in mm-hmm. pursuing them. Yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. Sure. <laughs> because sure. of that. I, yeah. I really am committed to our hospital and our yeah. community. And I recognize Hillstall is a gem. It is. Hillstall Hospital is so important yeah. to our community. It is. We have to mm-hmm. have you know resources available for our local population. Yeah. Um, if it weren't for Hillstall Hospital, our folks would have to drive what, forty five minutes they to would. an hour yeah. mm-hmm. to the nearest hospital. If not longer. Yeah. Yes. So um, nope. I, I have a lot of confidence in our hospital. Mm-hmm. I, I believe what we do here, we do very well. Mm-hmm. What we don't do here, we admit and yeah. we have resources to take care of those patients that we sure. can't here so to speak Mm -hmm.
1: you know val any uh it's hard to believe uh, the uh, podcast is ready to come to a close here and we could talk to you for hours because uh, your background lends that um, and your leadership style certainly lends that and we've got tons of stories that i could talk Mm -hmm. about of uh, people you've impacted and those types of things but if you were to summarize your career i mean just talk a little bit about i mean it's coming to an end here in a week, it is, and uh, I know that's hard for you. Uh, new mm-hmm. phase of your life, though. You have grandkids, and you have a mm-hmm. husband at home, and you know that's important as well. That that life balance. Uh, you sacrificed a lot.
0: I'd say you've earned it.
1: Yeah, you sacrificed. You know the the family. Uh, how many times did you come in on call all the time and neglected a ball game or a special event or those things? Right. Many times. Many times, and that's what that's what healthcare is all about. Um, fortunately, is. a new generation of healthcare workers think that uh, that work-life balance uh, has to be greater than what you experience. But at the end of the day, in rural health, that's all we got. There are there are no you know long rosters of staff that you have. You're coming in, Val. Yeah. And we know that. And that's rural health as we know it today. So, as you reflect upon your career, are there any had, were there any moments that you can just were like, I'm just. That was an aha moment for me, or that was just a wonderful uh, thing that happened. Anything that you can think on, uh, think about, you know, on your career that you would like to share?
2: There are just so many, yeah, so many stories that I could that I could share. Um, it's just been a very gratifying and rewarding yeah. experience. I wouldn't have wanted to spend my career anywhere besides Holstal Hospital, yeah works with some wonderful people yeah you both of you included um and i've I've just i have a wonderful staff i'm going to miss them terribly i'm going to miss the people Mm -hmm.
1: it is but i won't
2: miss the 3 a.m
1: calls (laughs) 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 or the uh, budget questions or those things so what are you going to do val what what does your future look like
2: well as you mentioned i have three grandchildren and i'm planning on some adventures with them good and more time with my husband, and our three—we have three children, so more time with them as well. Yeah, we have a couple of sons who live in the Detroit area, so I plan on bombarding their place now Good. and then, <laughs> and spending some time with them.
1: Well, Val, I mean, I I I can't say enough about how blessed I've been with your friendship. Number one. Uh, we've weathered some storms and some people, and uh, mm-hmm. I, can, I thank you for that, number one. Number two, uh, for the care that you provide our patients uh, and the love and the prayers. Uh, I've seen you at the bedside before, and I know you've said a prayer or two, mm-hmm. uh, and that's so important. And so I thank you for the contributions you've made uh, to our community over the last four, nearly five decades, uh, in serving our patients the rule patient which mm-hmm. it's a different type of patient you know in in terms of what their needs are and really just ministering to them right there so for all of those things that you've done the encouragement to me in some of the darkest hours of my career uh, I want to say thank you 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 have been a resource you've been a tremendous tremendous asset to our hospital and to our community, and and there are no shoes, you know, that that uh, the new manager is going to step into, that'll ever feel as comfortable uh, mm-hmm. as what you were able to do in the pathway that you created. Truly, mm-hmm. uh, she'll find her own way, and that's important. But when someone ever says, you know, we well, have some big shoes to fill, she will never fill them. Um, okay. truly. Uh, and that's a compliment to you. She'll have her own management style. She'll fill her own shoes. She'll fill her own shoes. Yeah. But you, you have certainly blazed a, a pathway here in a course uh, that has sustained this program, many programs, uh, the sleep lab program. We didn't get to talk a lot about that either, but so much that you've done here. And the most important for me was the engagement piece to our staff and our patients uh, with some of the work that you've done recently. So Val, for all those things. Congratulations on such a rich and beautiful career. Thank you for loving on our patients and our community as you have. And please do remember to keep us in your thoughts and prayers uh, as the months, years, and decades uh, carry on. And we'll do the same for you in your new adventures with the grandchildren. Spoil them rotten, then send them home. <laughs> uh, and, and for the wonderful things that you've done uh, on behalf of Philzo Hospital, thank you for your long and very fruitful career.
2: Thank you so much, JJ. It's been my pleasure, really. Loved working with you.
1: And before we close, Val, we like to do a fun segment with each of our guests, uh, and we want to know. And so, you're from the rural community, right? Where and you grew up? Where
2: Hillsdale. Hillsdale. Mm-hmm. So I mean, you, you were never, born at this I hospital, was, right? I was born. You were born here, right yeah. here.
1: You never left. So you are truly rural, as we say. Uh, what is your most favorite? rural experience, or something that's just unique to the rural life that you've lived?
2: You know, I think years ago, we don't see it so much now, but several years ago, it wasn't uncommon to see an Amish horse and buggy parked in our parking lot, um, Mm -hmm. or a few of them wind up coming here to visit. You don't see that in the large cities. (laughs) Right
1: yeah right. you don't see that often do you or no, tractors it's... parked in the parking lot or yes, uh, <laughs> even people that get a ride, you know that what we call it catch a ride with the Amish. Uh, we've had people ride up from Camden before in buggies. so I mean, it's just the way we live, right? So it is. it's unique. So It is unique. Yeah. Now you special. You don't have a horse and buggy, right? Back, back at the house. No, do
2: you think I should get one?
1: I think you should. <laughs> I think you should run uh, some type of horse and buggy. for You and Dan would do a wonderful job <laughs> at explaining. But thanks again, Val, for joining us today on Rural Health Rising. Thank you. Next time on Rural Health Rising, we'll have another great conversation with another great guest. So be sure to tune in.
0: And with that, don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And if you like what you hear, leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts and tell others why they should listen, too. Your feedback helps more listeners find Rural Health Rising.
1: And you can now find us on Twitter. I'm at Hillsdale CEO JJ. Rachel is at Rural Health Rach. And you can also follow the podcast at Rural Health Pod. Until next time, stay safe, stay healthy, and stay strong.
0: Rural Health Rising is a production of Hillsdale Hospital in Hillsdale, Michigan, and a proud member of the Health Podcast Network, hosted by J.J. Hodshire and Rachel Lott. Audio engineering and original music by Kenji Ulmer. For more episodes, interviews, and more information, visit ruralhealthrising.com.